Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show, Pacifica host Garland Nixon on oil, diamonds, gold, serial killing, cognitive dissonance, and genocide Joe. Good evening. My name's Garland Nixon. Um, let's talk about the um, International Criminal Justice, the ICJ, that is the judicial arm, shall we say, of the um, of the United Nations, made a ruling. South Africa had gone to them. They'd written up a brilliant 84-page document, complaint, as we call it, uh, in, in, in court, a complaint. And they um, presented that to the court, making the argument that Israel was involved in a genocide against the Palestinians. So... We'll see where this goes. The U.S. is going to do everything they can to, to block them, but they are also liable. And I also think this also opens the door for some of the African countries and, and South American countries who have had horrible crimes and civil and, and uh, human rights violations committed against them by the European colonial powers, by the United States. Uh, hey, what about mm, black folks and uh, Native Americans here? <laughs> Time to go to the ICJ and make our plea, right? I mean, come on, look at the Native Americans. You know what I mean? If it, they're, they're living on, they stole everything they got, and now they're literally got them living on these reservations where like 30% of the people there don't have running water. You know, I mean, what kind of a international crime is that? So at any rate, I think it opens the door for um, people who have been heretofore powerless to come forward to go up against the U.S. empire and the colonial powers in Europe. And um, the fact of the matter is, I mean, look, there is a uh, diamond, the, 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 the crown that the queen or the king or whoever of, um, of England wears has a diamond in the middle. And I think it's called the diamond of Africa or something of Africa, right? Because it was stolen from Africa. It's worth 500 million. I think they want their diamond back. And I think they should sue you and say, give me every, all those jewels that ain't yours. Yeah, give them to me back. Um, France, you know, France, which uh, several of the African countries just kicked France out. But I mean, you got countries like Mali, you got countries, how's a country have 500 gold mines and they ain't got an ounce of gold. But France has no gold mines and they got hundreds of tons of gold that came out of Mali's gold mine. <laughs> see, see what I'm saying? Bottom line is, the U.S., the U.S. empire has been robbing these countries blind. Right now, Iraq, a lot of Americans just don't. You know, here's the thing. I don't blame a lot of Americans because a lot of Americans don't know how treacherous their government is. It's kind of like, let's just say, I remember reading this thing about this guy. You can look up called the BTK killer. Well, it's like blind torture killer or some serial killer, right? And I remember reading that he had a wife and kids. And I thought, gee, how's that feel? Hey, how's dad doing? Uh, I don't know. He's downstairs sharpening his chainsaw again. He's always sharpening chainsaws for some reason. I don't know why. Because he's the BTK killer, right? So at some point you find out your dad is a serial killer and you just thought he was the guy that took you on sleigh rides and stuff. And But he was a serial killer the whole time, right? Uh, I feel like that's Americans. You know what I mean? Americans are like, yes, we're out in the world to do good. And when they find out what their government's actually doing, a lot of them like go into cognitive dissonance. No, they're not doing that. <laughs> we're, we're the good guys. We wouldn't do that. And I understand. It can't feel good to find out that old dad's a serial killer. And in the instance of the United States, when you find out dad's a genocider, look, genocide Joe, right? Let me ask you this. You know how many people died in Iraq? Around a million. A million. Is that a genocide? And let me ask you something you might not know about your wonderful, dear, lovely, liberal government that's out to do good. We overthrew the government of Iraq, right? Overthrew, illegally, made up lies, overthrew their government, killed a million people, right? Right now, Iraq has lots of oil, and Iraq sells oil. Do you know where all of the money goes for Iraq's oil? Into the United States. The U.S. literally... When Iraq sells oil, we take the money. That is colonialism. And now the Iraqis are like, we want the Americans out. But they got a problem because the Americans got their money. And how are they going to get the Americans out when the Americans are literally stealing their money? We got all of their money. When the United States left Afghanistan, the United States had seven and a half billion dollars of Afghanistan's sovereign wealth fund. So we left Afghanistan, got thrown out of Afghanistan. 
And the Afghans said, okay, well, y'all are gone now. Yeah. Can we have our seven and a half billion back? You know what Joe Biden said? No, we're keeping that. We're thieves. The United States, common thieves. Seven and a half billion. Uh, they had, uh, look it up. You don't have to believe me. The, the Afghans were dealing with hunger and starvation that could have been rectified if somebody had given them seven and a half billion dollars. Joe Biden's administration, Mr. Biden, the people are running around four more years. We got to vote for this guy. They stole. Now, seven and a half billion dollars ain't much to us. But to Afghanistan, it's a lot. It would have stopped the starvation that they were going through. You know what happened? You know why people hate us and they like Russian China? Because Russian China brought them food and kept them going and kept them alive. And we stole their money like common criminals because that's what the government of the United States is. You know, I've been on here since 2013, 10 going on 11 years. And I've been saying people get mad at me. Because I say, if you look at the United States, I say, here's what people think. You think you're on a luxury liner. Look at us. We're on a luxury liner. You're on a pirate ship. The Jolly Roger, my friends. The United States goes around the world stealing people's stuff. Mostly brown people. But we will make an exception. But mostly brown people, right? And then we come home. The government comes home and says to the people of America, we're a force for the good. And they call it liberal interventionism. Here's what they do. That country over there that just happens to have a lot of oil and gold and uranium and things like that, bananas and coffee. The leader of that country is a dictator. Did you ever notice that? Isn't it interesting that all of the countries that we don't like, the leader's always a dictator. And because he's a dictator, we have to protect the people because those people deserve democracy. So we have to. So this is the crap they give us that kills me that Americans still believe that. I, I find it shocking, but we got to be the most gullible people in the world. So then they say, yes, um, country X has a dictator and he doesn't like democracy and we've got to save the people. And you say, and what are we going to do to save the people? Oh, we're going to bomb them. Won't that kill them? Well, in theory, it may kill some of them, but the rest will have democracy. And that's good. Now, we don't ask the people, hey, you want us to come in? Because they would always say, no, we don't. But they lie to the American people and they get the American people to believe that we are the good guys and we're going around the world. Did you know North Korea is evil? They're an evil, crazy country and they're a threat to us. North Korea is the size of Pennsylvania. How are they a threat to us? They're not. They're not a threat to us, but they're an independent nation who wants to do what they want to do, and they don't want to bend to the knee of the United States. So the United States comes home and tells the American people, the leader of North Korea is crazy, and he's insane. You ever notice this, too? The leader of any country that, that the U.S. empire doesn't like, they're crazy, they're dictators, they're insane, they're evil, but for some reason— some of the most evil dictators on earth the United States supports, gives them money and weapons because they'll do our bidding. The United States don't care about no dictator. In fact, I would argue this. Most of the countries, when the United States says they're an evil dictator, they're not. That's really how I judge it. If the U.S. points to a country and says, that guy's an evil dictator, I'm like, well, he's probably pretty much all right. He's, he's, he's good to go. If they call, the, Biden and him, if Genocide Joe and his crew or whoever it is, if it's Trump, if it's Obama, I don't care who it is. If they point to a country and they say that country's run by an evil dictator, I say that guy's probably pretty much all right. History tells me consistency is always the safest bet. And time after time, the United States literally puts Saddam Hussein in power. They gave him weapons of mass destruction. They during the Iran Iraq war, the United States used satellites to target the Iranians so that Saddam Hussein could use poison gas against them. And then a few years later said, hey, he's got poison gas. How do you know? We gave it to him. He's got poison gas. We got to go in there and kill him. And we went in there, the guy that we put in power killed him and a million more people and came home and you and, and they can still make the point to Americans. We're the good guys. And you got these schleps walking around here who still believe it. I ain't one of them. And coming up next on Arts Express, maybe everybody can lighten up a little in Washington, D.C. We'll see. Actress Cheryl Hines in a conversation about her other dramatic role off screen as the wife of Robert Kennedy, the only mainstream presidential hopeful 
who has denounced the U.S. bombing across the Middle East and calling for the removal of U.S. troops everywhere over there. Heinz also talks about portraying a frustrated parent raising her overachieving niece, along with herself as a repressed artist, channeling that passion as an unconventional hairdresser in popular theory opening this week. Plus, what's going down in her final season of Curb Your Enthusiasm. First, some scenes from that final season premiere of Curb Your Enthusiasm this week, then Cheryl Hines. Have you noticed that when you take a picture, you don't look nearly as good as you do when you look in the mirror? Because the mirror is how you see yourself, and the photo is how you're seen. That's deep. Whether I'm right or whether Antibiotics. Yeah, antibiotics. And that gives men breasts. Well, Larry could grow breasts. I thought of Larry with breasts. Well, he would, you know, you get pretty pretty cute. It's, it's not good for you. Pretty, pretty, pretty cute. I gotta be me. That's what happens when people have sex. They say, I love you. You're very special. People talk like that? Yeah. Men do that? You're small, you're petty, you're jealous. You're a walking virus, Larry. I gotta be free. Very sorry to hear about your father. Father and mother, thank you. Well, that's, you know, it's a little better. Your dad's still alive? Yeah. Oh, there you go. I've ever been in my life. I don't even know who I'm looking at right now. How is something good happening to me? How did you decide on the last name anyway? I assume it's your semen, right? What did you just say? I have to accept the fact that you're wired like a lunatic. I didn't know you had alopecia. You're a cheater. No, you're a cheater. You always have to be the center of attention. There's an authenticity involved in caring about oneself. Get that out of my house. Wait, let me say goodbye to your stupid no, dog. No, don't go. Hey, 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 don't, don't you touch dog. that dog. Do not touch the dog. I'm going to be honest, I'm disappointed. I was expecting more from a childhood hero. I really did the best under the circumstances of a person who hates people and yet had to be amongst them. I gotta be me. Hi, hello, Cheryl Hines, and welcome to our show. Hi, thank you. Okay, great. Uh, okay. Thanks. What was it about popular theory, the film, and the story that attracted you to be part of the production? Well, Ali Shear wrote a really great script, and I knew with her at the helm that she would do something visually exciting and also something that was, um, you know, that could really connect with people. Uh, I love that popular theory takes a look at a nerdy girl who's 12 that doesn't really fit in anywhere and comes up with a a way to make someone instantly popular. I, I love the idea of it, this heightened reality. Um, and I just, I thought that people would really respond to this, to this film. And speaking of roles, are you ready mentally for another portrayal in your life, the first lady? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, listen, uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I suppose I will be, you know, when the time comes, of course, I will be. And do you have, do you have any thoughts about what you might be up to as First Lady, especially maybe projecting some humor into the proceedings? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I like that idea. Maybe everybody could lighten up a little bit in Washington, D.C. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> and what do you feel Robert Kennedy could bring to the country and mend things as a leader? Well, I think Bobby has um, a way of connecting with people that the country is responding to. I mean, you know, running as an independent, he is is really saying... I'm listening to everybody, and his supporters are Republicans, Democrats, mm. and Independents. Yeah. So it's really the first time I've, I've seen a politician say, I, I want us to come together mm. 
and this is how I'm doing it. And, and when you walk into a room and you see all of those people together in one space, you know it's genuine. Mm. So I, that's what he's, that is definitely what he's bringing. And did you pick up any popular theory tips from presiding over a house full of children yourself, yours and Robert's in real life? <laughs> well, uh, tips, um, you know, I think it's funny because as a parent, you have an idea of what you think your child should be doing or milestones that they should be crossing or, you know, in this case, in popular theory, oh, you should have more friends. You should be more sociable. Um, but yeah, when you have your own kids, you, you realize it never really goes the way you think it's supposed to go or you want it to go. Mm. And that also happens in popular theory. Mm. And what about your character, Aunt Tammy's unconventional profession as a combo beautician and frustrated artist? And did you bring anything into your portrayal creatively or personally from your own life or artistically as an actress? Well, actually, I did go to beauty school. Uh-huh. I went to beauty school and I got the cosmetology license a long time ago. Um, and I was a hair stylist for a while so it was fun to do this role where I actually am a hairstylist but once again the heightened reality of popular theory not only am I a hairstylist but I'm doing (laughs) (laughs) extraordinary hairdos like a bird you know like a birdhouse yeah somebody's hair yeah so it was really fun to do and were any of those artistic creations those hairdos any of them your idea um, no, that was all that those all came from Allie's imagination. <laughs> <laughs> and what can you say about portraying Aunt Tammy as a frustrated parental figure and getting inside her head? Well, you know, you as a I, I play her aunt who's raising her. And to think that, you know, Aunt Tammy, Aunt Tammy thought that, um, Erwin wasn't doing well because she didn't have any friends and she wasn't, you know, in any social club. So, um, so Aunt Tammy tells her to stop doing science. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so she could be a better person. Um, it was just a little funny to me because, of course, you know, when you're watching the film, you think, okay, I know, even I know that's can't be the answer but you know at the time that's the best that Aunt Tammy could come up with so I think it was a little bit funny but she comes around you Mm -hmm. know she comes around to see Irwin as who she really is and what's extraordinary about her Mm. and how would you compare and contrast surviving your perplexing niece in popular theory with surviving Larry David on Curb Your Enthusiasm Well, I guess um, in popular theory, you know, my niece is so young. She's still she's still forming her thoughts and and figuring out who she is. And there's hope that she'll that she'll find that spark within her. And on curb your enthusiasm, Larry's Larry's not changing. He's he, there is no growth there he is who he is so so with Larry it's really just a matter of um just trying to get through the moment (laughs) Mm. and how do you feel about it coming to an end the last season yeah it's hard it's really hard Mm. it's sad it makes me sad but you know at the same time very grateful I've had such an amazing time with with everyone there, you know, with our cast and our crew and of course Larry David just being such a big part of my life. Yeah. Um, and he'll stay a big part of my life. So I so it does so I try not to get too sad about it, you know. Mm-mm. And are you coming up I know you have a very busy life right now, but are you coming up in anything else? Uh well right now it's just um yeah, curb your enthusiasm, our final season and then <laughs> Uh, now popular theory. So um, between those two things, I'm pretty. I stay pretty busy. Mm. 
And when Cheryl Hines looks in the mirror, what does she see? <laughs> oh, um, she sees. Oh, that's a good question. Um, a mom. Mm -hmm. Um, someone who's determined, and um, you know, ready for anything. Hmm. And um, somebody who will absolutely never quit. Mm. And looking back on your life and your career, what are some of the things that have meant the most to you? Uh, well, let's see. Certainly when I got Curb Your Enthusiasm, that was um, a life changer. I didn't know it at the time. I had no idea it would be a life changer at the time. I thought I just got a role in one-hour HBO special, which was a big deal, but not 25 years later. I had no idea it would still be on. Um, of course, when I had my daughter, um, life-changing in the best way possible. When I, um, when I met Bobby, life-changing. And my stepkids came into my life. I mean, I, I just feel like my life just keeps getting better and better. And... What would you like to convey to audiences about popular theory? I I want people to know that it's a really fun, uplifting uh, film that you can watch with your family. You can watch with your kids, and it and everybody will have a good time, and um, and and you'll you'll walk away feeling good, mm. and I think that's important. And what about the relations between adults and children and parents and children? Well, yeah, you definitely, as a parent watching it, you might think to yourself, oh, maybe I'm just thinking about what I want my child to be doing or feel. Um, and then when you watch this, you see it, you know, from a 12-year-old's point of view and and it's a good reminder that, oh, maybe there's something that I'm missing. <laughs> maybe there's something that I'm not seeing, you know? So I think that's, that's, that's a nice message too. Yeah. And would you say in terms of popular theory, did you, even though it is fiction, of course, did you pick up any tips on parenting from struggling through that film? <laughs> um, you know what? I, I I thought about when I watched it because there was a scene with my character Aunt Tammy and Erwin and Erwin walks in and she hears Aunt Tammy, my character, standing up for her with a another woman who was, you know, sort of uh, being critical of Erwin and and Erwin heard me say out loud how great Erwin is. Um, and it made me think, oh, it would be nice if once in a while as a parent, we told our kids, you know what I say about you when you're not around? <laughs> I say, you're extraordinary. Mm. You can do something no other person in, in this world can do. You shine brighter than anybody I know. Uh, so I think it's, that was a good lesson. Like, let's let them in on what you're saying about them when they're not there. Mm. Only the good things, of course. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much, Cheryl Hines, for joining us on the show. And the best of luck with Robert's campaign. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Okay, bye. Bye. And now on Arts Express. I'm a spy. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. One thing that Hollywood and Wall Street have in common is that their core businesses are based on illusions, money, and lies. Our guest today has been intimately involved with both worlds and has recently written a very enjoyable memoir called Bruise, 
Flying the American Dream from Hollywood to Wall Street. I'm happy to be talking with the author of Ruse, Robert Kerbeck. Hi, Robert. Hey, Jack. Thank you for that great introduction. Hey, Robert. When I was much younger, I dreamed of writing a book on actors who acted in places where it really mattered, like con games and undercover work. Well, you're kind of a perfect example of that, aren't you? So tell us briefly about your acting background and then how you started lying for a living. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I grew up in Philadelphia. My family is well known in the automobile business. My great grandfather sold horse carriages. My grandfather took over that dealership. My father took over that dealership and I was supposed to take over that dealership. But when I was in college at the University of Pennsylvania, I fell in love with acting and much to my father's dismay, when I graduated from college, I moved to New York to try to become an actor. And as many of your listeners will know, actors need survival jobs. And who stumbles into a career in corporate espionage? But that's what happened to me. Well, now, in a world where actors are often highly typed, you were a leading man type, weren't you? Maybe a slightly offbeat leading man, more like maybe uh, Willem Dafoe is a leading man or uh-huh. you know, more like that. Not a, just not a straight up leading man. But yeah, you know, I became a member of the actor studio. You know, I got an agent right away. I started to work right away. You know, and then, of course, I had this crazy job, which at first I didn't know what it was. I just needed a job. And my friend mentioned this job one day and he was very mysterious about it. He said something about it, and then he shut up right away like he'd been told, don't (laughs) tell people, anyone, what you do. Uh And I begged him. I said, dude, come on. I'm broke. I need a job. So he gets me an interview um, for this thing that I I don't know what it is. I go to a doorman building. I was living in Hell's Kitchen. Uh, I am escorted up to the penthouse, and this woman opens the door to her luxurious apartment. And right away, I know whatever this woman's job is, whatever her business is, it's lucrative. I proceed to have the strangest interview I've ever had. She never asked me anything about my my skills. She doesn't ask to see the resume that I brought with me. She asked me some questions about my relationship with my father, which I found very odd. And she sends me on my way. And I was pretty sure I had blown the interview. But my buddy calls me um, later that day and he says, you got the job, but don't get too excited because no one is able to do this job. And the <laughs> next day I went out to Brooklyn to begin training. And I quickly began to learn that what we were tasked with doing was calling major corporations and using our acting skills, creating voices, personas, characters, doing accents to get people inside these firms to release secret private information that they should never, ever in a million years release. You had advanced pretty far in the acting world, and and then what happened? Did this stay as your day job or? Great question. Yeah, great question. So yeah, so I, you know, I'm at the actor studio. I'm you know working with Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward. I'm I'm getting hit on by Kevin Spacey. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm you know going to the bathroom next to Al Pacino. I'm, and my agents at one point tell me I have to go to Los Angeles, and so I go to L.A. and I begin to work steadily in television. I killed George Clooney on a show called Sisters. So he could move on to a program you probably never heard of called ER. Um, I wonder what happened to that poor George Clooney guy. You know, each time I would get a show, I I was almost ready to let the ruse job go, to let the corporate spying job go. I I didn't need it anymore. I didn't want to do it anymore. I booked a couple of pilots, four pilots, and none of the pilots got picked up for a variety of reasons. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And as you, you're, again, your listeners may not know this, but you know, really to make it, really to cross over to the next level, you've got to get a TV series. And all of a sudden, you know, I was getting you know, into my late 30s and the acting jobs began to dry up. And at the same time that the acting jobs were drying up, the demand for my corporate intelligence became greater and greater, so much so that corporations were calling me and begging me to work for them well, let's back up a little bit, Robert. I probably jumped the gun a bit. You talked a little bit about your job was to get information out of certain corporations. Could you go a bit more into depth about what that really entailed? Sure. So in the beginning, the woman had a firm that really specialized in spying on Wall Street firms. So, you know, big banks and financial institutions. In those early days, we actually would occasionally go in person. 
But what we quickly began to learn was that we were actually able to get much more information on these firms by using the good old fashioned anonymity of the phone call. You know, we would do these ruse phone calls. We would use what people call social engineering. And so we would pretend to be people that worked within the company, <laughs> perhaps in a different office, perhaps not even in the U.S. You know, yes, this is Gerhard calling from the office in Frankfurt, Germany. We have the European Union regulators here and we need some information from the states. <laughs> right so you're laughing and of course the person on the other end of the phone would be smiling hearing this funny oh hey Gerhardt oh uh -huh. I, yeah I think I've heard your name you run legal for Europe what's going on buddy what do you need how can I help you because what are people taught in corporate America right they're taught to be a good teammate right to have positive corporate culture so somebody in a different office is in trouble is jammed up you drop everything and do your best to help them and that's what we, we found is that people would go out of their way to help us. If they didn't know the information, they would put us on hold. They would call someone else and they would find the information out for us. And what's the information actually that you're trying to get from them? So there were all types of information, you know, starting out in the pre-LinkedIn days, no one really knew who worked at a corporation, right? No one knew huh. what the organizational chart was. And so we would build the organizational chart that we would, of course, then sell to that company's biggest rival. But explain to me, why would that be important to a company's rival who works? Sure, sure. Let me, so I'll explain it to you. So the organizational chart basically gives you the template for who's at that firm. But more than that, what we would do is we would learn that company's ranking metrics. All corporations rank their employees. And some of the ways they rank their employees are obvious. You know, how much they pay people, what people's titles are, right? That gives you a really good sense of who the rock stars are at an organization. So now the competitors, the people that have hired us, are only going to try to poach, to try to steal the ah. very top employees, right? Right. They're, they're going to steal the number one salesperson. They're going to steal the number one trader. They're going to steal the banker with the biggest book of business. You know, Wall Street is as competitive, if not more so than the NFL. The uh -huh. people that are the CEOs and the C-level executives are trying to win at any and all costs. And if they can steal the number one or number two person from a rival firm, bring them over to their firm, many times that'll take them to number one or number two in whatever industry they poach that person from. And at the same time, send their rival down two or three notches. I see. So that was a very, very valuable job and you could charge a lot of money for that. How profitable are these kinds of activities? When I started out, believe it or not, it's funny now, we were getting $8 an hour. And by the end of my corporate spying days, I was making $2 million a year. Wow. Yeah. And, Did, and, then, we, and then we were getting other information too, Jack. We were also learning um, not, who, not just who the rock stars were, but we would learn new product plans, new strategies. Was a firm expanding? Were they contracting because they were having trouble? You know, we would learn all these other details. Do you think you were an anomaly in the business world or is that how business works in general? One of the most shocking things about writing this book, I cannot tell you, Jack, how many corporations reached out to me and said, Robert, we read your book and we'd like to hire you to spy for us. <laughs> <laughs> so corporations are desperate for secret and private information on their rivals today. Did you feel guilty about what you were doing or was it just another acting job or was it a really good way to make money? Uh, of course I felt guilty. You know, um, in the beginning we rationalized it um, because again, in the beginning I was making $8 an hour. And also, you know, I rationalized it that we were um, helping people to get better jobs. You know, as time went on um, and especially, you know, when I was making a lot of money, I did begin to feel more guilty about it. And I was really looking for my exit strategy and, and I wish it came a little sooner. Um, but one day my, my eight-year-old heard me on the phone and said, dad, are you a hacker? And I said, no, 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 I'm not a hacker. You know, and I did the whole rationalization story that I just uh -huh. told you. And my uh -huh. child said, but it's dishonest. And I said, yes, yes, it is. You're right. And that was the moment where I knew I had to get out. Hey, do you ever feel like you'd like to go back to that world? 
or no, 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 no. As no. a matter of fact, now corporations call me. I mean, <laughs> other than the ones that call me to spy, most call, call me now and they say, "Hey, you know, we want to protect our information better." And of course, we live in a world now where um, cyber crime and ransomware attacks are just mm-hmm. growing um, exponentially yeah. on a daily basis. And corporations have spent a tremendous amount of money and done a very good job protecting the hardware, the firewall, the software with the encryption. But one thing they haven't done is they haven't trained and educated their people, particularly mm-hmm. oftentimes their most junior individuals and their and the individuals that are paid the least. And I'm here to tell you, I can get them on the phone and 99% of the time they have access to the corporate directory. They have access to the corporate intranet. And if they have access, I can get them to give me information that they should never, ever give me. So if I'm uh, the receptionist at Arts Express Industries, our huge conglomerate here, and I get a phone call, how would that go? So, you know, what I would do is I would do some research on your your company and I would see how many employees there were, what the locations were, um, who might own your company, who the clients of your company, who the sponsors of your company. For each project, I would do a tremendous amount of research. And so I would Uh learn what the weak link was for your company, who would that assistant Maybe not know so well that they would recognize their voice, um, but they would know well enough that they would believe it was a trusted individual. And by the way, many times what we would do, because, you know, again, we're actors and you heard me do the accent earlier. So let's right. say I called up and let's say I you know, got your CFO's voicemail and your CFO said, you know, hi, this is Tim Jones. I'm not here right now. Leave a message. And I would call her up and I'd go, hey, it's Tim Jones. You know, and I would imitate that voice. Right. Uh Um, uh If your assistant knows Tim intimately, that's a little problematic. But let's say Tim is based in a different office or or Tim is, you know, maybe he's you know working with the accounting firm that you've hired because, you you know, you need some help with the accounting. And so now your assistant believes I'm a trusted individual. And so she's going to tell me anything and everything that I want to know. Our lies, because of the amount of research we did, sounded better than the truth. (laughs) Good line. (laughs) Well, as we wrap up, what's the most important thing you learned about Rusing? Two things. You know, uh, the first thing is my story is crazy. I I wouldn't necessarily recommend my career, but it is a hell of a fun journey. And I think that's what I tell people, young people all the time, which is take the life journey that you want to take. Don't take the journey that your mom or dad might want you to take or your spouse wants you to take or your boss wants you to take, you know, take the journey you want to take because, you know, you only have one life. And then the the other thing I would say is you you want to try to be an honest and upstanding person. And and even when you you do something that maybe you, you let yourself down and you're not doing what you want to do, you're not living how you want to live. It's not too late to change. And, and that's why I spend a lot of time speaking to people, speaking to groups, individuals, especially the elderly, um, not fall victim to these crimes, what I like to say, you know, being fished, duped, scammed, or rused. Well, thank you so much, Robert. I've been speaking with Robert Kerbeck, author of the memoir, Ruse, Lying the American Dream from Hollywood to Wall Street, published by Steerforth Press. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. I know everything, everything you do, everywhere you go. And next on Arts Express. Hi, this is the UK desk from Arts Express, and my name is Brett Gregory. Victor Halperin's movie, White Zombie, from 1932. Jacques Tournier's I Walked With a Zombie, from 1943. Gordon Douglas's Zombies on Broadway, from 1945. All early warning signs, which were ignored by the great and the good alike. Until... They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it! 
You're ignorant. They're coming for you, Barbara. Stop it. You're acting like a child. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. He'll hear you. Here he comes now. I'm getting out of here. Johnny. Hi, Brett. My name is Tom Fallows. I work for the American Film Institute, and I'm the author of George A. Romero's Independent Cinema, Horror Industry Economics, published by Edinburgh University Press. Welcome, Tom. So, born in the Bronx in New York in 1940, who was George A. Romero? George Romero was an American independent filmmaker best known for his series of zombie films, which spanned from 1968 to 2009. Beginning with Night of the Living Dead, Romero and his collaborators essentially invented the modern idea of the zombie. What do you mean by the modern idea of the zombie? Traditionally, zombies had their roots in Haitian folklore, where they were basically dead bodies brought back to life as slaves through magic. Romero removed this magical component and reimagined the zombie as a mindless ghoul hungry for human flesh. In the process, he also transformed them into something more immediate. He embedded his creation into the heart of America, where for US audiences, they were no longer some kind of existential other. They were deceased friends, neighbours and family members. Romero's Night of the Living Dead in 1968 was much more than a horror film, now wasn't it? Night was famous for being one of the first US films to have an African-American hero, where his race is never mentioned. Romero insists that lead actor Dwayne Jones was only cast because he was the best actor amongst his friends. But race is crucial to the film. Jones's hero, Ben, is fiercely intelligent and capable and ends up hiding from the zombie hordes in a farmhouse where he's trapped with a white patriarchal father who undercuts Ben's agency at every turn. And the film ends in kind of the starkest way possible with Ben surviving the zombies, but killed by a white posse that has supposedly come to the rescue. You, drag that out of here and throw it on the fire. Nothing down here. All right, go ahead, Don, and give him a hand. Let's go check out the house. Man. There's something in there. I heard a noise. All right, Vince, hit him in the head, right between the eyes. Good shot. Okay, he's dead. Let's go get him. That's another one for the fire. As other critics have pointed out, the images in this black-and-white horror film were evocative of a harrowing, real-world violence at the time where bloody attacks and assassinations on civil rights leaders and protesters frequently played out in the streets and on the evening news. In that sense, there are moments in Night with its gritty low-budget aesthetic that feel almost like a documentary and demonstrated Romero, whether he admitted it then or not, as a socially conscious counterculture filmmaker with his finger on the pulse of what was going on in America. So how would you describe Romero's view on people? on humanity. A main theme of his film is really communities and how people interact with each other. When it's dystopic, such as in his zombie films, it's about the impossibility for humans to function collaboratively and how this failure often results in our destruction. The human survivors of the zombie apocalypse can never work together and this failure ultimately leads to catastrophe. This is a thread that I think is very, very current in 2024. People not helping one another during difficult times, motivated only by self-interest. I'm, I'm shocked. So what role does Romero's use of explicit imagery play in all this? You know, the violence, the gore, the consumption of self-centred human beings. The key aesthetic in Romero's films is obviously the violence. It's, it's the gore. His films often revel in scenes of carnage and zombies devouring human flesh in extreme close-up. While the violence in these films has been controversial, often resulting in X ratings or getting the films banned, it never feels gratuitous. It's never violence for violence's sake. To me, the gore is crucial to Romero's politics. It gives an edge to the satire. It presents his rhetoric as something fierce and exceptionally angry and urgent. In that way, these films are almost like the best punk music in that they are confrontational, anarchic and disdainful of the status quo. You mentioned these films. 
Tell us a little about his follow-up feature, Dawn of the Dead. So, after Knight's critique of race and racism, the sequel Dawn of the Dead in 1978 turned to issues of consumerism in a very pointed manner. It's set in a shopping mall where it's almost impossible to see the difference between the zombies and contemporary American shoppers. They Are Us is a key line in the film and a key line in Romero's zombie cinema. The survivors in Dawn, meanwhile, use the mall as a refuge and the comfort they get from its wares allows them to ignore what's happening in the outside world. Again, this is an overt, plainly stated satire on the direction Romero felt America was headed in the 1970s. Ultimately, the film's not about consumerist greed, as some critics have stated, but it's about ignoring the problems we collectively face as a society. In 1968, George Romero brought us Night of the Living Dead. It became the classic horror film of its time. Not that room! Not that room! Now, George Romero brings us the most intensely shocking motion picture experience for all times. It gets up and kills. The people it kills get up and kill. This situation must be controlled before it's too late. They are multiplying too rapidly. Dawn of the dead. Meet me on the roof at nine o'clock. Get out. I don't believe We're it. We're gonna what? get out in the chopper. We've got to survive. Somebody's got to survive. They kill for one reason. They kill for food. They eat their victims. Imagine, if you will, that something has gone terribly wrong. Shooting, man. Now, accept the fact that there's no escaping the horrible consequences. George Romero brings back the dead. Night of the Living Dead has ended. Dawn of the Dead is here. Now, what I find very interesting is that not only were Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead both shot in Pittsburgh, Romero's production company, Laurel Entertainment, was also situated in Pittsburgh rather than, say, Hollywood. Pittsburgh was crucial. As an independent filmmaker, it gave him the freedom to tell the stories that he wanted to tell, largely without the interference of Hollywood or corporate decision-making. To begin with, he was working with low budgets, and drawing upon the local business community for financing, which really allowed him to fly under the radar and produce the kinds of bold, politically radical films that we've been talking about. It also gave him space to experiment with alternative working practices. And at the start of his career, his films were much more collaborative or egalitarian than traditional modes of filmmaking allow. Romero and collaborators such as John Russo and Russ Streiner were really striving for a democratic process of filmmaking. Um, Night of the Living Dead particularly was made in this uniquely collaborative style, where although Romero was credited as the director, all the key decision-making was done collectively by a core team, from editing to shot selection to production design to core aspects of the screenplay. It sounds like a socialist cinematic utopia. What could have possibly gone wrong? Although it started as a grassroots organisation, the international success of Dawn of the Dead, which earned over $55 million at the box office, really changed the shape of their operations. After Dawn of the Dead, the firm went public, and it became beholden to shareholders and committee meetings, just the kind of bureaucracy that Romero tried to avoid, and that ultimately pushed him away from the company in the mid-1980s. Capitalism crushes creative collaboration. Stop the press. This said, however, Romero, Laurel Entertainment and their horde of zombies actually did bring some genuine prosperity to Pittsburgh in more ways than one, didn't they? Although this experiment in egalitarian film production didn't last, Romero always valued the creative input of collaborators and his company nurtured a base of film workers that ultimately helped transform Pittsburgh more widely. This base of trained professionals fed into Pittsburgh and transformed it into a leading film centre. Um, it remains a leading film centre to this day, with Hollywood productions such as The Dark Knight Rises using that talent base in Pittsburgh to create these big-budget films. And, of course, Romero's cinematic influence spread much farther than Pennsylvania. In terms of Romero's impact on independent cinema more widely, this can be seen most evidently in horror. 
Night of the Living Dead awakened filmmakers such as Toby Hooper with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Wes Craven with Last House on the Left to not only the socio-political potential of the genre, but also its affordability, demonstrating filmmaking as something that could be achieved outside of Hollywood and even outside of New York without compromising on their artistic vision or political ideology. Halloween director John Carpenter famously once said, if any independent filmmaker tells you that they weren't influenced by Romero and Night of the Living Dead, they're lying. And what about the young pretenders who have followed in his wake? Sprightly socialist transgressives or lethargic capitalist copycats? Romero's idea of the zombie has become dominant and it's something we now see in everything from the AMC TV show The Walking Dead to Zack Snyder's recent Netflix film Army of the Dead. But what these recent films and TV shows tend to leave out is, as you say, the transgressive political address that has defined Romero's critical reputation. Finally, George A. Romero died in 2017. How will you remember him, Tom? Romero ended his career in Toronto, once again producing low-budget zombie films that were at once fiercely critical of American capitalism and deeply humanist in their approach to characters. I think the best thing that you can say about Romero is that he was always true to his counterculture roots and never stopped believing in the prospect of something better for America. Great to have had you on the show, man. Many thanks for your time and your insights. Thanks, Brett. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. This has been the UK Desk from Arts Express with Dr. Tom Fallows, author of George A. Romero's Independent Cinema, Horror, Industry, Economics, which is available now via the Edinburgh University Press website. Cheers. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.